And we're back. Welcome, everybody, to Gregorian Rant. We are in special guest mode. So we have, we have a very special guest today. One of the Nephilim. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I say that a lot. You do say that a lot. I do say that a the lot. Nephilim. Just a couple times. The Nephilim. Do I pronounce it incorrectly? I think it's, well, I don't know. We'll have to get Father Mike Rapp to That's give right. us a corrective on that and how you pronounce Nephilim. Or Nephilim. Or Nephilim. Hell. The race of giants in the Old Testament. The race of giants. So we have with us Father Sean Conroy. Present. So I am 6'5 and uh, a race of the giants, you could say. How much do you weigh? Is that a little too I weigh personal? 205. 205. Pounds, not cool. kilograms. So Cool. I'm, I'm at a uh, nice and trim 165. Nice and trim. I'm actually not. But happy birthday, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's happy right. birthday to the ground. You may be you may be lighter than me, but you're definitely older than me. It's true. Definitely old man. I know. With you two coming on board, I'm like, how the heck did I become the old man? That's right. 40 fun. So I'm f- yeah, 40 fun. That's a new phrase for me too. So dude, you're a priest now. That's crazy. That's Nine crazy. years. So that is so insane. Nine years of seminary. Nine years of seminary. Yeah, I entered right after high school. Graduated from Mullen High School, 2012. Uh, entered seminary, college seminary, and then came here to Denver. And uh, yeah, it's been a wild, long haul, but uh, God is good. And I'm so grateful uh, to finally be a priest. So if you're not at Our Lady of Lords in Denver, you should be. But what you might not know is Father Sean Conroy is about to be the new priest here at Lords, along with Father Vitold, and I'm not going anywhere. Uh, but the three of us will be together, and he was just ordained. What was the date? May 15th. May 15th. It's crazy. So My first month of priesthood, I remember I woke up every morning kind of freaked out. And I, I literally, this had never happened to me in my entire life, but I would wake up every day, and I was like, I'm a priest. Oh my gosh, like I'm a priest. I should be doing something. I had like this anxiety in the morning yeah. of what should I be doing? Because now I'm in a different state of life and right. my soul has been indelibly kind of marked. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get that in the morning. I get that at night. Like I'm falling asleep and it's just like, whoa, I'm a priest right now. So mornings I'm usually still waking up, drinking coffee, you know? So, uh, but yeah, I definitely had that. And even like uh, it's just weird celebrating mass, you know, and like learning how to do all the motions and the sacraments and whatnot. Yeah. So, uh, but it's a tremendous, tremendous gift. And I'm just so humbled by the fact that God has called me to this great vocation. Yeah, it is a great vocation. I still, people get mad at me sometimes for saying this, but after 10 years, I still have days. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a priest. That's like, how did that That's happen? Crazy. Yeah. How did it happen? That how is did a good that question. Happen? And are we sure it was valid? Archbishop Chaput, did you actually intend to right. ordain me. I don't know. Right. Um, well, great to have Sean with us. We have Father Sean. That's going to take some... Take some getting used to. Take some getting used to. Father Sean is with us. I uh, do want to give an update on Patrick Deveni. So Patrick did have that serious bike accident and praise God, he's doing well. That's the first thing I should say. Someone called Stephanie and at the scene of the accident, they grabbed Patrick's phone and they called Stephanie and they when someone has been in an accident, if they're okay, the first thing you say is they're going to be okay. Right. This person did not say that. I'm sure good intentions, but they, did, did you hear this? Mm-mm. They called Stephanie and they were like, your husband's been in a terrible accident. There's blood everywhere. 
couple other details and he, they cut out the, the call dropped. No. And she, they didn't tell her that he was going to be okay. Oh man. It was, it was awful. And poor Stephanie, it took an hour for her to be able to get back in touch with him. Mm-hmm. And she, that poor woman, when I was talking to her last time, she said she had a full hour where she just was wondering, is my husband going to survive? Is he just, is he going to pass away on the side of a road by himself and scary moment? But anyway, Patrick, so he has a, uh, fractured sternum. He's got, uh, some fractures in his, uh, thoracic spine. Uh, he had a concussion. He lost three quarts of blood. Wow. Uh, and I'm leaving something out. Um, he had 11 stitches on the back of his head, but praise God, miraculously, the, the Lord really looked out for him. So thank you to all of you out there praying for him. He's going to be just fine is what we're hearing. There'll be more details to come in the coming weeks, but, uh, thanks for your prayers. Continue to pray for him. We are sending some love and just care for them up to, uh, where they live in Erie, Colorado, and hopefully he'll be back on soon. So it's great. Yeah. Yeah. We're definitely praying for him. A little scary, especially with his wife and a baby on the way and everything. So, yeah, but praise God he's doing well. Uh, yeah. The way, the way I found out is, uh, he, he, uh, I don't know if you guys know what Strava is, but the, the cycling app running app, uh, to kind of track your stuff. And I was just scrolling through it. It's virtue <clears throat> signaling for bikers. That's right. <laughs> so I was scrolling through it and just, I, I, he actually posted a picture of himself in the ambulance. And I was like, what happened? And so I didn't hear about it till a couple of days later, but uh, I was surprised he actually posted it on Strava. So. Yeah, when when he's better, it feels kind of bad to like make fun of him when he is injured. Right. But when he's better, I'm going to give him endless grief about posting on Strava the, from the ambulance or whatever. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, he, he, he's been trying to beat his PR up that uh, Flagstaff and up there in Boulder. So yeah. He's, he's crazy. So father Sean's a big biker too. And I only in the companions, I mean, I, I do need to get in better shape, but I'm not that bad of shape, but I'm surrounded by all you like kind of freaks of nature. You are, everyone is like, Oh yeah. Father Sean is a monster on the bike. So I don't know about a monster. I, I need to uh, keep working out more, but I no. try, I try my best. Well, so. let's throw a shout out to father Jason Wunsch, who I'm sure is on his bike right now. He hates it when I say that. And so I love saying it. It's true. Like, he's on his bike all the time. And whenever, what he will say to me later this week is when he hears this, he'll say, I am not always on my bike. It's twice a week. I only bike twice a week. And so cheers to Father Jason on his bike right cheers now. Cheers to him. He went for a big ride on Monday. Did you see that? No. 94 miles. Not quite a century. Couldn't, 94 miles. Couldn't do the extra six miles. Couldn't finish it off. Yeah. What, a, what a loser. Okay. Well, today, we our topic for today is Eucharistic Coherence. And so what's happening, if you haven't been paying attention to the news, the bishops of the United States are considering writing a document, and they voted overwhelmingly to, about three quarters of the bishops voted to uh, write a document on Eucharistic coherence, basically saying there are things that matter uh, in your life as a Christian for you to receive the Eucharist. It's been really controversial. So... It seems like most of the bishops, obviously most of the bishops think this is a good idea. We need to just be clear about this. The smaller contingent, in my kind of, I don't know, read of this, they seem to be saying you're politicizing the Eucharist. Mm. And they're kind of saying we shouldn't put out a document on this 
Because basically the only reason you're doing this is because President Biden is a Catholic or at least holds himself out as one. And basically this is all about Biden and we shouldn't get caught up in politics within the sacraments. Is that, I don't know, is that your kind of sense? That's kind of my sense too. One article I read, I can't remember where it was from, probably the pillar, which is a great source if, if, um, if you're looking for like good journalism right now in the Catholic world, the, the pillar. Yeah, it's uh, pillarcatholic.com. Mm-hmm. Great, great resource. Strongly recommended it. I can't remember if it was from them or not, but just talking about how the USCCB has been planning to put something out like this for a while. Yep. On Eucharistic coherence, especially, I think it was like in the next five years that like over the course of these next five years to do something to kind of talk about coherence and why the Eucharistic is important because there's been a lot of uh, lack of devotion and a lost devotion towards the Eucharist, um, as you can right. probably to attest to as, as a pastor. So, um, so this isn't just something that's a reaction to president Biden being Catholic. It's not a reaction to, um, any of the other politicians, but it's something that the church has been trying to speak to for a while. What even if you're, I mean, one of, one of my feelings on this is even if it was, so many things in church history have been defined because mm. somebody pushed the issue. Right. And not that we need to define this. This is, and one of the things we'll get to today is the church has always held that there are certain conditions for receiving the Eucharist. Right. This goes back to the new Testament and the teaching of Christ. <clears throat> so I don't even think it was a, there's been a big push of like, this isn't about Biden. You know, we're not, we're not just doing this because we have a Catholic president. And I think the bishops want to, say we're not Republicans or Democrats, which that is important. Right. That's important. Catholics are not primarily Democrats or Republicans. They don't fit either party. I, there, there are certain problems both parties have. I would argue, you know, I think a lot of good Catholics feel that the Democrats have really gone off the rails on a couple of topics. Republicans though, we have to be careful. Like they're not, they are not the church's party. Right. Right. Yeah. One of the priests in the diocese gave a great homily that I happened to be at where he just said, have you made uh, Trump your Messiah back in January when everything was kind of blowing up? Have you made Trump your Messiah? Because if you've made him your Messiah, then you're going to be disappointed when, when Biden does step into office, et cetera, et cetera. So Christ is the Messiah and uh, you know, we're called to render under Caesar what is Caesar we're called to live we're we're political beings you know po- uh political meaning police meaning city like we're called to be a part of a city a community um so we need to talk about these things and we need to yeah. the 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 bishops need to speak about these things and i think it's great that they are yeah what do you think so so i think a good principle is like thomas aquinas right so he's kind of a big deal kind of a big deal he's kind of a big deal he's okay aquinas right what he always would do he never wanted to straw man anybody so he would take his opponent's kind of viewpoint and he would build it up and talk about, here's the strengths in their viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And so I think we should do that first, maybe a little bit today of I'm, I'm someone who thinks it's good. The bishops are writing this letter. Although I always say, I'm like in the Catholic church, the bishops, whenever anything happens, the response is let's write a document right. that no one will ever read. Right. Which is why I think Bishop Barron is so good because he's, he's on that edge of, we need to do more than just publish documents. But that being said, I would lean towards, this is a settled issue. It has been for a very long time in Catholic kind of uh, 
history and theology, there are nuances. But I, so what I want to do though, to start is with those that I would disagree with, who would say, don't write this letter. It's just going to cause division. We're already fractured enough. We don't want to politicize the Eucharist. Mm. What do you think is good in what those kind of folks are, are seeing? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head of like, let's not weaponize this and fracture people. Um, I think something uh, has always been said, something kind of needs to be said about like, what is the Eucharist? What is coherence? We're losing kind of the sense of authority right now. So, um, you know, I think people are afraid to uh, speak out as an authoritative figure. So I think the bishops are rightly nervous about uh, if we speak out too much, uh, maybe we lose our tax exempt status or maybe this or maybe that. But uh, obviously we shouldn't be working out of fear. So I don't know. I, I mean, that's not a great answer to your question, I guess. I'm not sure what would be <clears throat> some of the positives. Yeah. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? <clears throat> well, I think there's a couple points for me, I think, <clears throat> that are good on that side. One of them is maybe a more broad point would be that when you're in a really polemical moment as our culture is right now, you tend to kind of say things you wouldn't normally say. And so sometimes we rush to like decide everything. Mm. I, th I think this, for instance, about Roe versus Wade and transgenderism and, and uh, same-sex unions, that the country, not the church so much, but the country in the height of debate made a definitive decision and it just created a culture war that's going to last, seems like forever. So I think there's, there's a point there of let's, let's go slowly. Let's think this through and be, let's calm down a little bit. Mm. I think the bigger point that makes sense to me, and there is a legitimate point to this, although I think it's overplayed. And, and what this is, is that we talk about uh, the seamless garment of Catholic teaching. And so what that means in the church fathers is that, so in Jesus, right, John 19, he's on the cross and they divide his garments among them. But when they get to his cloak, right, I think the Greek word is hiton. Uh, I think that's right, but I'll, I'll allow for correction. Anyway, it's, it's one piece. It's woven from top to bottom. And there's some cool scripture with that uh, mm. in... Um, First Kings, when the kingdom is divided, mm. uh, the cloak is a symbol. Uh, the, and there's a cloak that gets torn into 12 pieces. Right. And so the kingdom, the cloak is the symbol of the kingdom and is divided. And uh, if, let me look up the reference for that really quick in case you want that. Uh, but so in John 19, this is when, there we go. So uh, John 19 um, when the soldiers had crucified, this is verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was without seam woven from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They parted my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Well, uh, this is why you take notes, right, in your Bible. So 1 Kings 11.30, because I couldn't have remembered that off the top of my head. Um, but in 1 Kings 11.30, let's look at that really quick. So what happens there is Jeroboam, your favorite name in mine. That's right. By the way, if you ever remember this after after King Solomon, mm -hmm. there's, he, there's a rebellion and mm -hmm. there's 
Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Right. Super confusing. My mom gets so frustrated with that stuff. She's like, Brian, why? Why are those Bible names so hard? I'm like, just to make it hard for you, Teresa Larkin. Right. But anyway, so what happens is, so Jeroboam is walking. uh, uh, Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem. The prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had clad himself with a new garment, and two of them were alone on the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. So there's 12 pieces that this garment is torn into that becomes symbolic of the kingdom and it's torn into 12 pieces. So the church fathers see two things here. One, they see that the kingdom can't be divided. Right. And this is one of the things that we always want to say about the unity of the Catholic church is you can break yourself off from it, but the church is not divided. Mm. The church is always one. Uh, Jesus's garment can't be divided. They can't, they have to cast lots for it. Unlike this uh, garment of a But then secondly, the seamless garment of Catholic teaching. You want to talk about that a little? Uh, I mean, you probably understand this better than me, but uh, my understanding, right, is that seamless garment, meaning from the early church or from Christ himself who taught the apostles and the apostles who then uh, through succession and through tradition, uh, there's always one line of teaching. We call it the hermeneutic of continuity as well. That the church can never, the church does not like change her teaching or change her mind, but sometimes uh, can develop it. But when like there's a new dogmatic teaching to find, it's not something that's like, uh, oh, because we discovered something new, it's no, the church has now Mm -hmm. defined this. And the church usually defines things when things are attacked. But from Christ himself, uh, he hands down through the apostles, the teaching of the church. Right through tradition, essentially. Right. And, and one of the things that fathers will say about that is they'll say, and the church still teaches this, is that everything's connected, right? You can't, you can't pick and choose. You can't be a cafeteria Catholic. Right. And I think, and so we, people who are kind of more, I don't know, I hate the words using political terms in the church, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's just, I don't know how else to say it. So more kind of quote unquote conservative Catholics they will accuse liberal Catholics, quote unquote, right. of picking and choosing what they want. Cafeteria Catholicism. I will take uh, the love of God. I will take baptism, but I'm not going to take contraception or, you know, kind of moral issues. Mm-hmm. But with the, I think, so back to the bishops. So people who are saying, don't write the document. And maybe not just the bishops, but other Catholics. One of their constant points, right, is that, you people who want to write this document, you quote unquote conservative Catholics, you guys are all about coming down on abortion and on marriage as one man, one woman, but you don't seem to care much about the poor. Right. And you don't seem to care much about other social issues that the church does teach. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me think of that, that seamless garment, everything's connected and you can't just pick and choose. And so plain kind of not wanting to straw man the other side, that does matter. Right. <clears throat> yeah, that reminds me of uh, John 17. So the high, high priestly prayer of Jesus when uh, he's praying. 
And uh, he says this, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that they may all be one. Uh, I wrote part of my thesis on this. Uh, I mean, it's a bachelor's thesis. It's not anything too, uh, too high. Don't sell yourself short. <laughs> uh, but St. Cyprian of Carthage talks a lot about this, that the one garment of Christ, the seamless garment of Christ, Jesus prays that all may be one. Now, of course, here he's talking about uh, the Father and Him and the Holy Spirit. God Himself is one. But a lot of church fathers have understood this to mean the church as well, that there's only one church and uh, she can't be separated. And so right. one church, one teaching in the church, yep. uh, in, in unified together. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's important that we recognize that Jesus prayed that all be one, yeah. that we may all be one. There's only one true church. Everything else is is a splinter from that. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think this is why, <clears throat> maybe to go to the other side, this is why ultimately I think this is really good. The bishops come out strongly mm. because it's always been Catholic teaching. And so the way, the way that I would say we have unity, so unity is massively important mm -hmm. in the church, but the way we have unity is not by not talking about controversial issues. Correct. And I think that's one of the fallacies here is, and this is part of what happened to Protestant churches in the United States, is as Protestant churches disagreed with each other about all kinds of things, the rise of the evangelical church in America had a lot to do with, we need to stop talking about things that we disagree about. Let's just not talk about them. Mm -hmm. And let's agree there's four things that matter, right? Like God created the world, mm -hmm. sin separated us from him. Uh, Jesus died for you to reconcile you to God. And if you confess, you know, faith in him, you'll be saved. And they tried to find the lowest common denominator and say this, you know, everything else we can agree to disagree, but this is the baseline and this is all that matters. Right. Um, I don't think that's a very strong unity. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, and the problem is like, where does the Bible fit into that then, you know, or like, where does any sort of authority fit into that? The, the, is there anyone guiding the church at that point? I mean, I think you would still say the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit guides the church through men or individuals that he sets in a hierarchical fashion in the church. Yeah. Um, so if it just comes down to like the least common denominator, then there's still room for a lot of my own interpretation. And then if I have my own interpretation at one point, I can just go and essentially um, start my own church if I disagree with something, which is what we're seeing, right? Yeah. And it's, it's tough. I feel like the tensions on this, there's a, there is a legitimate tension. And so I think a lot of people out there, they want, they're tired of people. And I want to say this sometimes to like, and not to pick on president Biden, sure. but let's pick on him a little bit. Sure. Sometimes there's Catholics out there and politicians are easy because they're public figures. They're not the only ones, but, but the tension in my mind is you're not Catholic you disagree with the Catholic church's teaching on every major subject. Right. And, and we all know it like any main, and it's usually morality, but, uh, but you disagree with, with the church's teaching on every moral subject. And these are not new teachings. And we'll get to that. These are ancient teachings. Mm. They've, and they're consistent. The church has taught them from the beginning. And so on one side, I always want to say, can you just be a person of integrity? Mm. You know, at a certain point, if you're an adult, and you're like, I disagree with the church on every single issue that surrounds sexuality, 
I disagree on natural law. I disagree on X, Y, and Z. At a certain point, I just want to say, could you be an adult and say, if I disagree with, you know, I don't know if you, if you were a member of the Elks club, I don't even know what the Elks club is about, (laughs) but if the Elks club, if you say, you know what, I'm a, I'm an, I'm an elk, love the Elks club. I disagree with everything that their teachings and statutes and whatever rules they have in the Elks club disagree with everything, but I'm an elk. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, I'm like, really? Right. Come on. Right. Yeah. I completely agree. And at what point, uh, at what point within the Elks club have to have to come to that person and say like, Hey, you know, buddy, like, listen, like you're, you're not in agreement with, with what we do here, you know? So like, yeah. why are you even calling yourself a part of this group? Should you, even be a part of this at this point. Yeah. And, and of course Christ is accepting of everyone, but Christ still, I mean, when you read the gospel, he still says things like I've come to bring the sword. I've come to separate, uh, the goats from the the sheep or the, uh, the weeds from the wheat, you know, like he, he still needs, uh, in his justice to separate people and, and, uh, according to the way that we choose to live our life. Yeah. And so if, if you're not going to accept all the teachings of the church, um, and it's okay, I think to wrestle and struggle with these things, exactly, but when yeah. you start to publicly start to say, uh, I reject these 10 teachings of the church, but I'm still going to pub, I'm still going to present myself yep. for communion. I think that's where, uh, it's, it becomes very problematic. Yeah. And I think that's the other tension, right? Is it, so like, uh, there's a tension in church history and you know, this, this is something I wrestle with myself and I, people today in the church wrestle with is there is a a heresy that says we're going to create the pure church, Mm. right? We're going to uh, really separate the wheat from the chaff, the, the goats from the sheep, you know, we're, Mm. we're going to separate those out. The problem with that is that uh, you miss the chance for people to repent. Right. And, and, you know, for me, what I tell people is all of us are on the the path, or at least those of us who are trying to be, maybe not everyone's on the path, right. but it's a Christianity means following Jesus. And for much of my life, I can't say most anymore because I'm getting older, but for a period of my life, I didn't understand these things. Patrick, right. if he was here, he would say, you know, uh, before meeting Steph, he didn't get a lot of this stuff and he was like, he didn't understand the church's teaching on abortion or any of these controversial issues. And my thing is it's okay to wrestle, but at a certain point there is, there is a time where you got to grow up and own. If you disagree with everything Jesus teaches. And one one of my favorite one-liners is everyone is welcome in the church and they're welcome to follow Jesus, but not on their own terms. Right. Yeah. I like that. That's really powerful. Yeah. Not on their own terms. Everyone's welcome. Just not on their own terms. Mm. So I think that's huge. The, um, so I think the communion thing, right? No one wants to be told that they're not in communion, uh, but there are rules. So, so I always think of first Corinthians 11 as a great new Testament passage for this. And so I think, you know, with, with, uh, the church, I think, we want to be careful that we're not trying to create this perfect church where you have to be perfect to receive communion. And you hear people say that the Eucharist is not supposed to be some trophy that, wow, I lived the perfect life and I achieved this. And that's true. Right. But that doesn't mean there are no parameters, no rules. So in first Corinthians chapter 11, St. Paul, this is chapters 10 and 11 is really where he talks about the Eucharist the mm-hmm. most. Um, but here in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, 
Paul says this, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Hmm. Strong language, right? Very strong. Um, yeah. And there's, there's a lot we could go into in that passage in the context of hmm. what it falls in, but, but there are conditions. You can't just do whatever the heck you want to do and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And there's a great line where Jesus says, uh, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? Hmm. So I think, I think that's huge. Do you want to add anything to that? Otherwise, I want to jump to politics. Go ahead and jump. Yeah. Let's jump. So here's the other question. So the, the big tagline I'm hearing from some of the bishops who are saying, don't politicize the Eucharist. And you said it earlier, right? Like Catholics, it comes from polis, right? The, the Greek city state. Mm-hmm. Catholics have to be involved in the polis. Right. Right. And so, so brand new priest, Father Sean Conroy, we're going to hit all the controversial topics today, but what's a, what do you think is a Catholic approach to the church and politics, which is an insanely difficult question? It is an insanely difficult question. Um, <laughs> do you like that? Do the rights listen to this? Dr. Terry, right? No, they're way too smart for this. This too would be smart. like, they'd be like, we're so embarrassed. Father Brian actually said that. That's yeah. funny. Yeah, t- uh, Dr. Terry Wright, he's our professor at the seminary in um, social and political philosophy. So uh, hopefully I can, I can answer some of the, the you know, give, give a good response uh, insofar as he was our professor. But yeah, so we're part of a police, we're part of a city, so we're called to do it. But what's difficult in a democratic society is that democracy says all things are equal. But the church at the same time knows that she is... Uh, or Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to get to heaven. And he gave us the church as a medium, a means to help us get to him. Right, a vehicle. A vehicle, exactly. And so, or even thinking of Noah's Ark, like if you're on the Ark, you're part of uh, salvation. You're going to be saved. Uh, and the church is is an Ark in a sense. Right. And so- Origin will say a number of things like that. Right, yeah, This this um, these analogies that help us, give us these images, but- yeah. Um, Are you origin haters out there? That's right. Um, so, so we're on a journey, but um, to where was I going with this? Uh, so living in a pluralistic society. Living in this society, democracy says all things are equal, but the church must still say, we are the way to salvation. We have the answers. Jesus has the answers to eternal life. So there's really only one way to go. And so she must continually speak out and say, no, there is only one truth. There is, there, there is an objective truth that we must follow. Right. And so that's where it gets tricky because democracy must say all things are equal. It must in order for a democratic society to or exist. Is, it seems like there's nuance to this, but <clears throat> with, it seems like what, what in, a, in a pure democracy, at least, we don't have a pure democracy, but you kind of have truth is like has something to do with popular vote. Right. Right. And what's, and there's dangers in that, which is why the founding fathers would put certain limitations on that to curb that. Right. But yeah, but right. You you have, you you have a pluralistic society and it seems like you have to go along with what the kind of popular thought of the day is. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's where it gets tricky of like, we need good leaders who can, 
enact laws that uphold the common good, the dignity of all people. And unfortunately, there's going to be conflicting opinions there. And so as Catholics and even as Christians, like we must find good, good men, good women, good leaders who can step up and give that voice of what is virtue, what is goodness, what is truth, what is beauty in the world to help uh, so that these leaders can step up and enact laws, enact policies that uphold the common dignity and yeah. the common good of all peoples. And it seems like baseline principles. Mm-hmm. Like I know Pope Benedict, he got in trouble. You remember when he got in trouble for the Regensburg address? I didn't realize he got in trouble for that, but you were probably like 14 years old. If that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. I was in Totus Tuas one time mm-hmm. and we were driving and my teammates, we have Totus Tuas at the parish this week, which is a summer program for kids. And some song came on. And I was like, Oh, I remember when the song came out, like I was in high school and one of my teammates was like, Oh yeah, I was four years old. No way. And I was like, no, you weren't. And we looked it up and it was, it was something like that. And I just hated them for the rest of my life. Right. So <laughs> where were we going with this? Uh, just pluralistic society. Oh yeah. So the Regenberg address. So Pope Benedict in there says, when you live in a pluralistic society and right, we, we believe in the, the freedom of conscience. We believe in that, mm-hmm. that we have to listen to the dictates of our conscience. Right. There's nuances you can't follow. You, you have an obligation to form your conscience. Right. You can't just say, well, I just think this is right, so I'm going to do whatever I want. Uh, but we do believe in the, the inviability of the, the, a person's conscience. But Pope Benedict says, when you live in a society that is pluralistic, so you have Muslims and Jews and Christians and atheists and Buddhists and you know, New Age people, what has to be the playing field is rationality. Right. Right. We have, we have to have a rational playing field. And I think, and so I do think this is where politicians like Nancy Pelosi uh, and uh, President Biden and other Catholics in, in public life, where there is a distinction where they can say, we're not going to impose Catholic law on everyone because not everyone's Catholic. Right. The problem, I think, is that abortion isn't a Catholic law. Right. Right. And so people will say, it drives me nuts. You'll come on me with me on marriage retreats. Mm. So when I do, we do marriage prep here at Lords, Ryan's been in it. And I'll give a talk on why the church is against contraception. And one year we had this couple up there. You never know what you're going to get. It's kind of a fun thing being a priest. Welcome to being a priest. You never know what's going to come at you next. Mm-hmm. And I gave this talk on why the church believes what she believes about contraception. And it's an hour talk. Don't, I don't cite the Bible. I don't think a single time. I don't cite church. Te- I, I do cite some of John Paul II's quotes. Sure. But it's, but it's all rational thought. It's like, right. let's think about what a human being is. Let's think about what the sexual, sexual act is. And we'll, we'll think clearly about these things. So anyway, I finished that talk. And one time we had an OBGYN up there. And she wasn't a Catholic. Uh, she was marrying a Catholic. But I remember she said to me at the end of the talk, she said, oh, well, I guess I'll have to talk to my patients and see if they have religious objections. Hmm. And it just drove me crazy. I was like, did you hear me cite a religious argument a single time in there? Right. This isn't, and, I, and I, so I think for for our brothers and sisters who don't like it when the church talks about controversial moral teachings, most of these moral teachings we don't think are 
just revealed by God. Mm-hmm. They might be revealed by God as well. So for, but I don't like it when Catholic politicians get out there and they say, well, I'm a Catholic, so I'm against abortion, but I would never, I'm personally opposed to it. I don't even know if, if President Biden says that or not. I don't think he has, but other politicians have. Yeah. <clears throat> but when they say things like that and they're like, well, in my private life, right? Now I could say things like in my private life, I think everyone should go to mass every Sunday. Right. But if I was the, you know, ruler of the world, I don't think that law should be imposed on everyone because it's the, the Sunday obligation is revealed by God and requires faith. Correct. And not everyone has faith, but people have rationality. Right. And abortion is a baseline principle that isn't just revealed by God. But anyway, I want to, I want to share this quote from the Didache. Okay. So a couple more things about Eucharistic coherence here, folks. So this is not new. So the earth, this is consistent Catholic teaching through all of time. And I think this is where communion means something. And things that are sacred are things that we protect. It doesn't mean that there has to be an infinitely high wall, and that would be one extreme. And that's happened in church history where we've gone too far. And so there is a tension here, but there are rules too. So uh, the Didache was written, it's hard to date, but in the second half of the first century. So Didache is a Greek word, you know what it means? Teaching. Good job. When I ask Patrick those questions, he gets so mad at me. Really? Because he doesn't know his Greek. Well, that might have been an easy one, but don't ask me what uh, splankna means. Oh, I love that word. So. Splankna is a great word. It means bowels. Uh, but anyway, so in the Didache, written really before much of the New Testament was complete, it's an early Christian document. Uh, and Didache just means, as Father Sean said, teaching, or the teaching. So... Uh, so the, this is paragraph two, um, and, and I should start the, the very beginning of the Didache, the first line says there are two ways, a way of life and a way of death. And the difference between these two ways is great. That's very biblical. That's Psalm one, that's Deuteronomy 28, where Moses says, you know, um, there's the blessing and the curse. And if you obey the commandments, that will mean life. If you disobey, that will mean death. Uh, that's Matthew 7, where Jesus says, uh, broad is the way that leads to death and destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. So there are two ways, a way of life and a way of death. And the difference between the two ways is great. So that's the very opening line of the Didache. Uh, and it says, the way of life, then the way of life is this, you shall love the Lord, thy creator, and secondly, thy neighbor as yourself. And you shall do nothing to any that thou wouldst not wish to be done to yourself. My translation has a little they're the thy sure, kind of that fine. translation. But so, so it's taking these two commandments, right? Love God, love your neighbor. But down in paragraph two, then it says this. So the second commandment in the teaching means commit no murder, adultery, sodomy, fornication, or theft. Practice no magic, sorcery, abortion, or infanticide. See that you do not covet anything your neighbor possesses, and never be guilty of perjury, false witness, slander, or malice. So one of the big points I want to make if you're out there listening today is that we live in this time where to be loving means you never challenge anyone on anything and there are no rules. Christianity, in my mind, and for any Christian, Jesus is the one who reveals what love is. Mm. And love it has rules. If you really love someone, love has rules. 
And the church has always taught there are things that exclude you from communion. Right? If you want to have a, a loving relationship with your wife, don't date other women. <laughs> like, right. Don't date other women. And the early church has no problem excluding from communion right? People who don't live a certain way. And one more quote, and I'll throw it back to you, Father Sean. One more quote here is from St. Justin Martyr. So he writes, I have it on my phone here because I forgot to bring over the book it's in. But anyway, uh, Justin Martyr writing the year 155, he's explaining the Eucharist. And so we're picking up in chapter 66 and it says this, it says, this food is called among us Eucharistia. Greek word for Eucharist, of course, of which no one is allowed to partake, but the man who believes that the things we teach are true. So you can't take the Eucharist if you don't believe what the church teaches is true. Hmm. The early church had no problem saying that whatsoever. Uh, so you can't receive unless you believe the things we teach are true and that you have been washed with the washing that is for the remission of sins, which is baptism and unto regeneration and who is so living as Christ has enjoined. For we do not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Jesus Christ our Savior, and he on and on has taught. Hmm. The early church is like, no, there are rules. There always have been. There are things that exclude you from communion. Um, so this isn't just politics. And I'm going to say one more thing. Sorry, I'm very verbose. You'll get used to this coming to the Lord's. Sure. The, the one last thing I'd say is that the gospel is political. Mm. There's, there's bishops out there saying, don't politicize the gospel. Don't politicize the Eucharist. And I understand what they're saying, but Jesus was crucified because of politics. The, the gospel is political. The word in Greek, right? We call Jesus Lord, right? Kyrie. That word is a political word. Lord right. is a political word. That word is a word that people in Jesus's day used for Caesar. Hmm. Christianity is political. When, when Christians stopped worshiping pagan idols, they were martyred because they were sinning against the polis, against the state and the city, hmm. because the pagan gods were part of what it meant to be a citizen, is worshiping them. And when Christians refused to do that, that was a political act. And so there's all this talk of, well, we can't make the Eucharist political. Right. I hate to break it to you folks. The Eucharist is political. It always has been. Mm. Jesus is political. The word, even the word gospel, uh, <clears throat> the, that word is a political term in the first century. Right. It's a political term of when the Caesars would publish uh, proclamations. And when they would talk about like, for instance, the birth of Caesar Augustus, they publish it as gospel, as good news. Mm. So there's my tirade. Yeah. What do you think about that? I think, I think it's all very good. Um, yeah, a couple of things come to mind with regards to the the first century and the Eucharist. Um, a lot of people will say, "Oh, the the church fathers don't really talk about the Eucharist much," uh, which isn't completely true. Uh, however, they are getting at something, and that is that the fact that this was the most sacred thing. This is the most sacred thing to our faith, and in many senses, it was kept secret because they didn't want anyone to just anyone to walk into a mass. And so even to come to mass, you had to already be uh, received into the church and you had to be practicing and believe. 
to the point where if you ever rejected the faith, there were extremely, extremely strict penances before you could come back into the faith. Right. I think um, we should reinstitute those. Yeah. 14 no years of 14 <laughs> years of penance before you could uh, come to mass again. Yeah. So, no, I think that that's a huge point, right? It's like, that was a big deal in the early church. And did we even have the rumors in the early church of uh, Christians being cannibals. Right. Right. People there, that was a rumor in the ancient world that Christians were cannibals, which of course is because of, of the Eucharist, mm-hmm. which were, you know, hint we're not. Right. Or spoiler, we're not. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's a big point. And I think it is funny the way these things work, but the, there's a tension here of, it's kind of like in parishes, people will say in the United States, if you go to an Anglo parish, everyone goes to communion. And if you go to a Hispanic parish, like apparently no one goes to communion. Right. And then it kind of feels like both of those are wrong. Right. Right. And, and that brings me to another point that you were kind of talking about, about uh, the Eucharist as a gift, right? We often yeah. think like Jesus says, take this all of you and eat of it for this is my body given for you. It's a gift. It's given for you. And uh, especially in the American mentality, we think I can just take, I can grasp, I can just consume this. Uh, but Jesus has received this as a gift and you don't that. take gifts, you receive gifts. And so we must receive this. And part of our receptivity to receiving this great, the greatest gift we can receive uh, is that we have to follow some of these rules. And just as you just pointed out with St. Paul, like receive in a worthy manner, because if you don't receive in a worthy manner, it's for your own condemnation. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so if I could just uh, point us to the gospel of John as well, this is John six, one of my favorite, um, passages in John. So the bread of life discourse, no, right? You can't go there. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah. J- bread of life discourse and how, uh, so, so John's gospel, right? He doesn't have an institution narrative. Right. He has the bread of life discourse where he, wait, you got to explain what's an institution narrative. Institution so narrative that, no. is, uh, the last supper when, uh, Jesus says those words, you know, take this all of you and eat of it and yeah. take this all of you and drink from it. Uh, the actual institution narrative where Jesus uh, institutes the Eucharist. John doesn't have that, which uh, would be a whole different topic in itself. So, And we're staying on topic. All you haters out topic. there who accuse me of not staying on topic. Um, so uh, powerfully, right? This is where he says like, uh, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, right? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within me. Very powerful words. But what I, what I want to point out is John six sixty six. Uh, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer walked with him. Many of his disciples left him because of this hard teaching. And it was hard because one, you're telling me I have to eat your flesh and drink your blood for me to have life within you. Like that is absolutely insane. Um, And many left Jesus because of this hard teaching. I think one of the hard teachings of the Eucharist is that we must present ourselves worthily to receive, to receive Christ. We can't just take, we can't just think that we have a right to receive the Eucharist. We have to present ourselves worthily. I I always think there's a big, so on this issue of who can go to communion, Mm -hmm. right? And I think, you know, most people who listen to this, maybe not all of them, but I think most will probably agree with the basic stance that, that I think is the clear one that church teaches. Um, But I think uh, a big question about this is like, uh, how do I, how do we find, where do we draw the lines? Yeah. Right. And in my mind, there's a huge difference between 
someone who says, Jesus, I, I believe you. I, I believe everything you teach. I'm really struggling to live up mm-hmm. to what you teach. Right. Doing my best, but I'm kind of a jerk. Uh, I struggle to make, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm having trouble thinking of any sins because I've never committed one. <laughs> but no, I'm just kidding. No, but people can struggle to live up to the teachings. And, but I think that's radically different from someone who says, Jesus, I, I, I'm a Catholic and I think you're God. I just think you're wrong about four things. Mm. And you need to change your teaching on these four things. And I'm going to receive communion anyways. And I think that goes back to what you said. I love that language, but it's a gift. Mm. This isn't a right. It's a gift. Mm. And I think in our country, we're so used to thinking of everything as a right. I have a right to this, that, or the other thing. But if it's a gift, I have to, I have to receive. Mm. Right. Love that. Right. Absolutely. And so there's challenges in that, um, but we must present ourselves worthily and receive with worthiness. So let me ask you this. <clears throat> this is a little bit of a topic derail, Uh-oh. but not that much. But this is a magical question. I think on this topic that many of us have, I have this in my life in, at times, and lots of Catholics have this question. So what if someone, the church teaches, if you're in a state of mortal sin, mm-hmm. right? So a serious uh, sin that you had, knowledge was wrong and sufficient freedom. So you didn't get forced into it, but you chose it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you shouldn't receive the Eucharist. Correct. What if you're not sure? What do you do? And I get this question all the time in the confessional. People say, Father Brian, what if I'm not sure? Mm. What, what would you say to someone in that kind of yeah. circumstance? Yeah, I think uh, people's consciences bite them because, uh, because they're probably, um, it could be borderline or, or it might bite them because they know it's wrong in some sense. But I would say if you're not sure, if you're in mortal sin, um, try to go to confession beforehand if you can. But if you can't, uh, sometimes it's hard to know if we're in mortal sin. Right. Uh, is it really grave matter? Did I really have a free choice? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I would say, um, if you're not sure and you don't have the chance to go to confession beforehand, um, I think it's okay to approach communion. I really do. Because, uh, you know, you're, you're trying your best. You're trying to live a virtuous lifestyle. Uh, you're trying to follow the commandments of the Lord. And you're do, if, you're, if you're truly doing your best, uh, it can be hard to know at times. Yeah, I like that. <clears throat> I, think, I think that we should have a certain confidence if we're trying really to live that life. The other thing I tell people sometimes is, Everybody is like on, some people are more scrupulous and some people are more kind of loosey goosey. Right. And having a little self-knowledge, if you're a little more scrupulous and you know that about yourself, because I think most people who tend towards scrupulosity, they know they tend that way and it's hard. Mm -hmm. But I think if you tend that way, you should probably be going to communion if you have a question. Correct. If you're a little more loosey goosey, which I tend to be that way a little bit, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, whatever, you know? Um, Maybe you're the type of person then, maybe you need to be a little harder on yourself and say, well, if I have a question, if I should go to communion or not, mm. I tend to be a little bit more loose on myself. So maybe I'm the type of person who should withhold. I don't know. Right. I think that's a good distinction because everyone has a different, um, prudence is always subjective to the person. Right. Uh, prudence being uh, our right reasoning in, in, in action. 
And so I think it's good to make a distinction. Yeah. If you tend more towards scrupulosity or to be loosey goosey as the high theological term that you just used. Yes. The Greek, I'll tell you the Greek later. So, um, so it's important to know where, where my kind of, where I typically fall, I guess. Yeah. I think it's a really good kind of rule of thumb with that. Um, well, I love it. Well, today I hope guys you've, we've given you some things to contemplate with this, uh, Communion with Christ is something that's very serious. The Eucharist is mm. is the center of our faith. So there are rules around it, but it's also, you know, I do think we've got to watch out for the tendency to say we can build a perfect church, yeah. right? Only like in the like in Matthew 13, where Jesus gives the parables of the weed and the weeds. I said that wrong. The weeds and the wheat. Yeah. You can't separate the two till harvest time. So we have to be a little careful that we can know who's worthy and who's unworthy. Mm. But there are rules. That's clear. And there always have been. This is nothing new. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I think the church's unity in the Eucharist, which is the source of our unity, mm. that we, we need to welcome sinners into that. But I don't think having rules around that, and the church clearly doesn't think having rules around that, is something that's opposed to communion. Right. Well, I have a question for you. Uh-oh. Uh, since you have actually been in a parish for longer. So... Typically before funerals and weddings or uh, more so before the distribution of communion, you know, you typically make some announcement of uh, just a reminder or, or, you know, just to let everyone know uh, we can, uh, we, we know that the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. And so we ask that if you're not, uh, if you're not Catholic or you're not a practicing Catholic, that you, you refrain from receiving communion today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's not the time to really have a conversation about it. So you can kind of say something like, if you have any questions about this, please ask me after mass. And yeah. I'm just wondering, like, have you ever had people come up to you after mass and say like, how come I can't receive communion when I go to my Lutheran church, anyone can receive communion. Yeah. Have you ever had that question? Not so much in that context. I do make that announcement at every wedding and every funeral. <clears throat> I get it more. There's been a couple of times where it's happened actually in marriage prep. Mm. And one time I, there was a couple and the groom, I believe his family was Lutheran or I'm not sure if they were Presbyterians. I think they were Lutherans, but we went to dinner and I just said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm here. If you guys want to talk, anything you want to talk about, I'm always open, whatever. And the father of the groom brought that question up. Mm. And I, it's it's a hard one to explain to people sometimes, especially when they kind of get what you and I talked about today, but what they don't get is what if I believe in the true presence? Mm. Right. And so I tried to explain that to him and he was not, not happy. The father of the bride had to be like, okay, so moving on, you know? Yeah. But it's, I think it, part of that goes back to the seamless garment mm. is that communion, right. is not just communion with Jesus our communion with him. And Paul will talk about this all over the place is that he'll talk about how like in first Corinthians, you were called into the communion of his son, mm. the koinonia. And so Eucharist, what it does is it doesn't just create communion with God, but it creates a church. It creates a communion with each other. And so I think our Protestant brothers and sisters struggle. Cause they're like, I love Jesus. I love him. And I, and some of them will say, Hey, I've read John chapter six. I've read Luke 23, right. I've read first Corinthians 10 and 11. I believe it's really Jesus. So why can't I receive? Yeah. <clears throat> and the point is that it doesn't just create communion with God. It creates communion with the church. And if you're saying, Hey, I want to have communion with Jesus, but no, I don't want to have communion with his church. 
something's wrong there. Right. That's really interesting. I've never met anyone who said, I believe this is Jesus, but I still don't want to be Catholic. Usually when people yeah. believe that it's Jesus, they they want to become Catholic so that they can receive him. Yeah, they do. There's some of them, I mean, and I, I agree, it's more rare, but sometimes they'll have hangups still where they're not mm-hmm. ready. They're saying, you know, Mary's a hangup or, sure. uh, you know, authority of, of the Pope or right. whatever. They might have other hangups. Uh, oftentimes, you know, even like faith alone kind of thing. Right. And, and that's tough. I mean, I do think we should pray for communion. The, mm-hmm. the John 17 you're talking about is the witness to the world that the father sent the son is the unity and the love between Christians. Yeah. And it's a scandal to the world. I, I hear this all the time. People say, why should I be a Christian? And usually what they say is everyone disagrees with everyone else. And everyone thinks that everybody else is going to hell, which Catholics don't believe. Right. But they'll say things like that, and they it it becomes a way that they excuse themselves from pursuing the truth. Right. So if if Father Brian's a great guy and Father Sean, but so is Pastor Bob and Pastor you know um, Susie, and they're amazing people, mm-hmm. but they can't even they're all Christians and they can't even agree among themselves. Why should I even try? Right. And so we we do need to pray for that communion. That it's pretty clear if you're. If you're a Christian, we believe in the Eucharist. We live a certain way. We at least, at least we very much strive to. And if you're not, then you're really not a Christian. Right. All right. We should wrap up here. Uh, please pray for Patrick and Stephanie. Uh, baby Gianna is coming at the end of July. So wow. pray for a healthy delivery for for the baby and uh, for blessings on their family. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Send us an email, rant at lordsdenver.org. Uh, and we will see you next time. See you next time. Thanks for having me. Hopefully I get invited back. We'll we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Okay. Peace. Peace.